Please take your seats and turn, if you would, please, in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Philippians in chapter 1, and we'll pick up our reading in verse 8. Please listen carefully now. This is the word of the living God. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, the Puritan John Bunyan once observed that you can do more than pray once you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. He says, pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. And instinctively, we know that. We never graduate beyond the school of prayer. That's true for me. It's true for your elders. It's true for each one of you here in this building. This weekend, when I was away speaking to the students at Bright, um, and with those 11 hours of lectures, we devoted almost two of the hours to prayer, actually. I was there to teach them preaching a felt Christ, and we spent two hours talking about prayer, or the best part of two hours at least anyway, um, because prayer is important. And I, you, you might wonder, well, why do pastors need to pray? Well, for at least two reasons. We need to pray because I need God just as much as you do. Um, the Baptist pastor Derek Prime said, to neglect prayer is to neglect God. A prayerless pastor is like a fish out of water gasping for breath. That holds true for you as well. A prayerless Christian is like a fish out of water gasping for breath. Are you gasping for breath this morning? Are you neglecting prayer? And also, because pastors need help just as much as you do, John Piper was right when he said, the essence of the Christian ministry is that success is not within your reach. It's never a case of try a little harder and you can, you can get there, son. No, we're speaking to people who are by nature blind, deaf to God, don't want to hear God by nature, or hearts are opposed to God by nature. We're speaking to dead people and asking them to live. And you would think I was crazy to go into the graveyard and do that or the home for the blind, and say, open your eyes. You'd think I was nuts, because I've only got the voice of a man. I don't have the words or the power to do that. And so, I need the help of God. Success is not within my reach. A pastor, Piper says, who feels himself competent to produce eternal fruit, which is the only kind of fruit that matters, knows neither God nor himself. Our prayer life is an outward reflection of whether or not we really believe. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. You might think you believe that, 
How much time you spend in prayer shows whether or not you really do believe that. And that is true for me, and it's true for each of you here this morning. Now, when it comes to prayer, we have two principal problems as Presbyterians, and they both connect to ignorance, right? First of all, we're ignorant about how prayer actually works. I mean, we believe that there are no maverick molecules in the universe, that God does according to His will in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all deeps, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, what is this that you have done? We believe that um, God does according to His will in heaven and earth. He, he, He works out all things, not just some things, but all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, according to the counsel of His will. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things, Paul says. And yet, without denying any of that, James can look at the church and say, you have not, because you ask not. And there's no contradiction there. And the reason, of course, is because um, the God who organizes the beginning and the end of history and everything in between is a God who organizes those things to fall out according to what we call second causes. And those second causes are absolutely essential to the fulfillment of God's plan and purposes. How essential was the bullet that killed JFK to God's decree that his life would end on that day? Absolutely essential. And so, prayer is absolutely essential. The God who ordained that Augustine would be saved through the prayers of Monica, his mother, made her prayers absolutely essential in the salvation of that young lad. And if she hadn't prayed, he wouldn't have been saved. In exactly the same sense as if I hadn't dropped this cup over the edge of the, of the pulpit this morning, it wouldn't be lying on the ground. Now, wouldn't it be a terrible thing if you got to heaven at the congregation and you said to God, why wasn't I more godly than I I was. Why was my marriage so hard and my relationship with my children so difficult? And, and why didn't you remember your covenant, Lord, toward my children? And God answered, you have not because your pastors and your elders ask not. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? Prayer is absolutely essential in the purposes and the plan of God. A second struggle that we have when it comes to prayer is that we're ignorant of the defining needs of the hour. What do we pray for? A brother is sick. Do we pray that God heals him or that God brings him to heaven, which is far better? A child is lonely at school, being bullied. Do we pray, Lord, remove the bullies? take them away? Or do we pray, Lord, I know it's so often your way. School my son or my daughter in the… train my son or my daughter in the school of disappointment. It's so often the way you make us bigger and better and stronger in the Christian faith. Let your grace be sufficient for them in the trial. Don't remove them from the trial. 
Like if you were Peter and you heard Jesus said, Satan has prayed for you, Peter, that he might sift you as wheat, how would you pray? You'd say, Lord. You said no, right, didn't you? No, Jesus said, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to your brothers, strengthen them. Jesus did not pray that Peter would not fall. He knew that there would be lessons Peter would only learn as he fell and through the fall. Peter needed to hear those words, go tell my disciples and Peter, that Christ's love for Peter was stronger than Peter's love for Christ. Peter needed those lessons on the, on the, on the sea that Easter morning when he met Jesus after the, the amazing catch of fish. He needed to hear Christ ask him, do you love me more than these, Peter? Peter could never have learned the things he needed to learn had he not fallen. But neither Peter nor I would have thought to pray, Lord, let him fall, but let his faith not fall when he does. We just don't know what to pray. When you're praying for your pastor this weekend as he went to the pastor's conference, you'd have prayed maybe, Lord, grant there be hundreds to come to hear our pastor preach about a felt Christ. I don't think you'd have prayed, Lord, let only five come, which is that's all that came. <laughs> and after an hour, one of them left because his wife had an accident. And by the end of Saturday afternoon, there only were three left behind because one had to go back and prepare his sermon for Sunday. And so, um, you know, you'd never have prayed that maybe, would you? But yet I needed to know the lesson that all those hours of work were worth it just to help three men preach a felt Christ. It was an inestimable privilege to be in that room. God met with us in that room, this tiny wee room in this tiny wee church. And um, that holds this seminary, and there were three students there all weekend, and God met with us. I, was a great I would never have prayed that, though. But God did that. And it's not just you who struggle that way. Paul himself faced the same struggle. Remember in Romans 8, he said, and the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we, he said, not just you. You know, Paul didn't say, you know, it took you hoi polloi in the pews. I knew what to pray for, but you poor people have no idea. No, we do not know what to pray for as we ought to pray. Wasn't it Paul who prayed three times, Lord, you're not listening. Take this thorn of the flesh out of me. And he had to he heard the voice again and again, my son, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. So prayer is really hard. We don't understand how it works, and we don't even understand what to ask for when we actually get to work and pray. So what should you pray for when you pray? Well, of course, you can pray for anything. Nothing is too big and nothing is too small. We should always attend our prayers with, Lord, if it be thy will. But the great secret of successful prayer is to keep your prayers focused on what you know your heavenly Father wants to give you. Like when my kid at Christmas time, what do we ask? And I say, the secret is ask me for what I want to give you. You'll get it every time. And Paul comes this morning alongside us, and he wants to help us pray. And he has five things for you to pray for in your prayers. If you pray these five things, you can be sure God will give them to you. It's only a question of when, not a question of if. What should you pray for? You should ask God to give you the ability to love, to love better than you can, to think as clearly as you can, to choose as wisely as you can, 
to live as well as you can and to glorify God as much as you can. Those are the five key categories of prayer, and we'll work through them this morning if, we have, if the clock slows down and we get through them all. First of all, love better than you can. It is my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more. Your love never stops growing. Now, Paul doesn't define the object of love here, like who are we to love? What are we to love? Are we to love God more and more, or are we to love other people more and more? And of course, the answer is yes. Because we can't do the one without the other. Loving more means getting more out of yourself and into the lives of other people. It means what Paul says in, in, um, in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. It's your mind to have, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, yet he emptied himself, not by losing his divine prerogatives, as Wesley says in that hymn, emptied himself of all but love. No, he didn't. He didn't empty himself of any of his divine glory. He didn't empty himself by subtraction. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by taking, not by losing, by taking the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of a man, being born in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Be less about yourself. Not that you think, not that you think about yourself not that you think less of yourself, but you think about yourself less, and you be more concerned about other people. But how can you escape the almost almighty gravitational pull of your grubby, grimy, selfish little heart? Well, the answer is you need, you need a greater gravitational pull. And the only thing big enough to pull me out of my own heart is the gravitational pull of the weightiness of God Himself, which is why Paul begins in Philippians 2 by saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there's a trinity in that, any encouragement in Christ, as you know Christ. And then he speaks about participation in the Spirit. Where's the Father? In the middle. Any comfort of love. As you, as you grow to know the love of God and the, the encouragement of God and the Holy Spirit coming to share the, the, the Godhead with you until you become a partaker of the divine nature, as Peter says, you'll never ever be able to, to get out of yourself and be more concerned about other people. So it's only as we experience the love of God that we grow in our capacity to love God Himself, and then loving God Himself, we love others, even to the extent that we lay down our lives as the ultimate sacrifice. And in that sense, 
the answer to every Christian problem. What, what, what problem do you face today in the Christian life? The answer to every single problem you face. More love to thee, O Christ. That's the answer. A husband struggling to love a difficult wife. A wife struggling to love a difficult husband, which is all of you in this room who are married, by the way. Okay. The answer is, how do you love them better? More love to thee, O Christ. I need to be overwhelmed by your love for me, and out of that overwhelmedness of the love of Christ, I need to love you more, O God, and loving you more than I'll love them more. It's the answer for parents struggling to love an errant child. It's the, it's the answer for a child at school struggling under a bully's um, jackboot, or struggling to connect with the in-group at the youth group, and they're feeling outside the center of things. The answer is more love to Thee, O Christ. The answer for a family struggling as they watch cancer claw away at the, the body of a beloved father or mother or son or daughter. And they feel, Lord, I, I don't know what to pray for, and, and, and I, I, I'm struggling, Lord, to say, Thy will be done, Father. And the answer is more love to Thee, O Christ. Because Augustine says, you see, the problem with each of us is that our, our, we have what Augustine called disordered loves. That's why we sin. Our loves are all higgledy-piggledy. We don't love first things first, and second things second, and third things third. They're all upside down, back to front, inside out. So last night, on the way back from the conference, I've been writing some days 9,000 words a day, which was beyond the, my normal ability. God gave great help. And then 11 hours of lectures, I, I wanted to get home. And I passed a uh, highway patrolman, and I was going too fast. And you know, the, the, the heart transplant doctors, they love highway patrolmen's hearts. You know why? Because they're never used. <laughs> They're as good as new, right? And I knew the moment I saw the flashing lights, highway patrolman, I'm in trouble. No mercy. And um, what was the problem there? I was tired, and I loved rest too much. I had seen my wife all week. I'd been studying dawn to dust practically, and I, I loved her too much. I wanted to be back home with Catherine. I loved the children too much. I wanted to be back home with them. And, and, and my love for those things were so much in that moment, I allowed my foot deliberately, it wasn't an accident, just to press a little bit harder on the accelerator than I should have done. And I allowed my car to outrun the laws of the land, which is the same thing as outrunning the law of God. My loves were out of order, do you see? And when you're praying to God, you need to pray, Lord, rearrange my loves in the right order. When you lose patience with a child in homeschooling, or maybe they go to a bricks and mortar school and they fail the physics test or a math test, and you lose your temper and you yell at them, what's, what's, what's wrong there in that moment? You love their success too much, their future happiness too much. 
They think happiness is found playing PlayStation. No, happiness is found getting a good job and getting, <laughs> getting the American dream. You think, well, maybe you just love your reputation as a good mother because if everybody knows that your child failed the physics test, that makes you a bad mother or a bad father. That's why you get more cross with your children when they disrespect you in public than you do in private because in public you've got skin in the game. Our loves are out of order, do you see? And what we need, and Paul says, what you have in God in Christ is a God who's able to do heart surgery and help you to love the right things in the right way, in the right order, and to the right end. Can you ever love things too much? Not in the right order. Paul says, abound more and more. To the Thessalonians, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, he says, but I want you to excel still more. Or later in that chapter, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it to all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. You never ever outgrow your need to say, Lord, help me love you more. Help me love others more. Help me love better than I can. That's the first thing. The second thing is, help me, Lord, think as clearly as I can. It is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. I'm sorry to tell you, but Lennon and McCartney, the Beatles were wrong. Love is not all that you need. We need a specific kind of love, one that is knowing and discerning. I want your love to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, right? That's something our culture needs to hear. Why does our culture approve of gay marriage? Well, the answer is love. Does a man not have the right to love another man? If that's what his love is telling him, or a woman to love another woman, is that not okay? Because, like, it's love. Like, surely we can't say no to love. And John Murray is brilliant here. He said, when we examine the witness of Scripture itself as to the origin of the canons of behavior which Scripture approves, we don't find that love is allowed to discover or dictate its own standards or patterns of conduct. We do not find that love is conceived as an autonomous, self-acting agency, which of itself, apart from any extraneous prescription or regulation, defines its own norms of behavior. Love isn't its own reason. Love can't act. You can't do anything you want as long as you think you do it lovingly. No, there's a law that governs what love is and what love does. We do find, Murray says, that from the beginning there are objectively revealed precepts, institutions, commandments, which are the norms and channels of human behavior and of human love. Even man in his innocence in the Garden of Eden was not permitted to carve out for himself the path of life or of love. 
It was charted for him from the outset. Simply put, Adam had no right to love the tree that was forbidden. Why can't a man love a man the way he should only love a woman? Because a man should never love a man the way God says he should only love a woman. And a woman should never love another woman the way she should only love a man. There's not a sexual compatibility there by design. And actually, rather than expressing the love of God, it's actually a perversion of it, a rejection of it, and a defiance of it. I was talking to my, one, one of my mentors um, over the weekend at dinner on Saturday, Friday night, and we were talking about how many good men in the Presbyterian Church in America are falling foul of gay marriage. They're changing their opinions. These are solid men who were well to the right of the center of the PCA for years and years and years, and yet one after another are caving in and joining the Revoice movement. And I said, why is that happening? And he said, oh, do you know why? He said, it's their children. It's one thing to say homosexuality is wrong. It's another thing to say when your son or daughter come out of the cloth as homosexual. And, just, and he said, he said, he didn't mention, there's a well-known man in the PCA, he said, who I know and love, and he told me recently, my blood ran cold, that if his son or daughter came out um, as homosexual, he would have to change his position on ecclesiastical membership. Shocking. What happens? It happens because you love your children more than you love God. And God forbid will ever be found in that situation whenever um, we're placed in that position, God forbid. And Paul says we need a, a love that is informed by knowledge and understanding. Motown was almost right. Peace, love, understanding. No, love, knowledge, and understanding. Knowledge, and the Greek word is epignosis, which is an experiential knowledge. It's used of the knowledge of God. We need to know more of God. Um, I was reading Lloyd-Jones recently this week, and it hit the nail right, and he said, my chief goal in preaching, he says, is that God would help me give the people a sense of God. His glory. And that's what Paul says. We need a love that's informed by the knowledge of God and by, by the knowledge of ourselves, the way we ought to be, and the way sin has warped us also. We need to know ourselves, how our loves get higgledy-piggledy out of order so we can bring them to God in broken pieces and say, Lord, put the pieces back together again. Knowledge, like what Calvin says, that great statement at the opening of the Institutes, um, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists in two things, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And which comes first is hard to discern, Calvin says, because the one leads to the other. We need to love as 
better than you can. You need to think as clearly as you can. Then you need to choose as wisely as you can. Lord, help me. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Literally, so you can choose between what is good and what is better and what is best, right? So you're flying to the Bahamas. You're on the, the, the runway of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the airport, right? And you hear a loud crash on the right-hand side of the airplane. You look out the right window, and you notice that the starboard engine is lying in a heap on the tarmac. It's fallen off the wing. And the captain comes on the intercom and says, ladies and gentlemen, you may have noticed a loud crash on the starboard side of the aircraft, and if you look out, indeed, you will see the, 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 the engine is lying on the ground. I want you to close, pull your, your window visor down and forget what you saw. It doesn't matter. We've got, a, we've got an engine on the left-hand side of the wing, and it's perfectly capable of getting us to the Bahamas. Don't you love the idea of lying on the beach in the Bahamas? And you'd say, yes, I do, but I, I love the idea better of getting there in one piece. And I distinctly don't love the idea of splattering myself all across the, the Atlantic Ocean on the way to the Bahamas. So I think we should get deplane, and even if it means we're six hours late for the vacation, let's get a new plane, right? Because I want to choose better, good, good, bad, good, better, and best. And um, because having flying with only one engine doesn't sound very good to me, right? And we need Christians who are wise. I was talking to one of the men at the conference who said a friend of his. He's, a, he's, a, he's one of those Reformed guys who's so Reformed, right? Not only does he not celebrate Christmas, he doesn't celebrate birthdays either, right? Because the only holy day is the Sabbath day. Now, I agree with him, the only holy day is the Sabbath day, right? But the world has enough reasons to think that, I, that, that we're stupid without, whenever they come to me and say, why don't you sing Christmas carols? We don't believe in Christmas. We believe in Jesus. Explaining that to them is so difficult that the harder I would try, the stupider I would sound. And I also love Christmas, right? But think about the child. You make that, you know, can you imagine as a child growing up in a home where there are no Christmas presents? It's always winter, never Christmas, and no birthday presents because the only holy day is Sabbath day. You better buy your child a present every Sunday then because that child's going to grow up and be thoroughly miserable going to school. What does Santa get you? Oh, we don't believe in Santa. We, we believe in Jesus. Right? And we need wisdom to think through the precepts, principles, and examples of God's Word and apply them in a way that brings life to people and doesn't suck the life out of them. Love better than you can. Think as clearly as you can. And choose as wisely as you can. It's so, you know, Paul says, um, and I forgot what I was going to say. What did Paul say? Um, 
choose as wisely as you can. It's something to say that was, I think, wise, but it's gone. Um, the, the ravagings of a tired mind. Um, choose as wisely as you can. It'll come back, maybe. It's gone. Um, okay, yes. We proclaim him, Christ. We proclaim Christ, warning every man, teaching every man with all wisdom. It's not enough to preach Christ. It's not enough to warn every man and teach every man. We need to do it with all wisdom, because what do I say? What do I leave unsaid? It's, it's, it takes tremendous wisdom, right? It takes tremendous wisdom to apply the Word of God and the law of God. It takes wisdom how to apply the principles of God's Word. There's more I could say, but we need to move on. Choose as wisely as you can. Live as well as you can so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness um, that comes through Jesus Christ. These are not people who just are moralistic or try harder, dig deeper. These are people who are so connected to Jesus in His justifying righteousness, in His sanctifying righteousness, that it transforms the way they do life. Pure and blameless, David Strain, my friend and colleague, says the word pure is sometimes translated sincere, and sincere comes from the Latin phrase sinecera, which is used in the, was used in the marketplace in the ancient world. If you were purchasing pottery, Strain says, or china, sometimes there'd be cracks in that china, and unscrupulous potters would cover that crack over on the surface with a plaster that would make the cup look perfect, but it wasn't. But if you held the cup up to the sun, you could see the cracks shining through, and it was an insincere cup. And so, to verify the authenticity of their wares, honest dealers would stamp their wares on the bottom with the word sinecera, meaning sincere, authentic, without blemish, without cracked integrity. There are no cracks in this vessel. Paul says, I want you to pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge, or in knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent what is good, what is better, what is best. Not just what is bad and what is good, what is good, better, and best. So that you may be pure and blameless. You might have an uncracked integrity. That what you appear like outwardly and what you really are inwardly measure up to one another filled with the fruits of righteousness, a, a life that everything is taken back to the standard of God's law with wisdom. 
And these fruits of righteousness have come through Jesus Christ. That you be so connected to Christ that every time you sin, your conscience would say, what doest thou here, Elijah? That you won't just cover over the cracks in your righteousness, but you'll confess it to people. You'll go to your friend and say, would you help me? Would you pray for me? I'm struggling here or there. Maybe you find yourself drinking too much alcohol, spending too much time on television, gossiping and slandering people behind their backs. Maybe it's anger and bitterness and wrath and malice, whatever it is, and you're struggling in the Christian life. And rather than just covering up the cracks with a plaster coating, you actually come to the pastors of the church, the elders of the church. If you're a lady, one of the women of the church, like Phyllis here, who's trained and, and, and skilled in counseling, and, 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 and come and, 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 and will you help? Will you pray for me? Will you help me uncover the cracks in my vessel and take me to Jesus, that He will do more than just put a superficial coat on them, but He will begin the work of putting the broken pieces back together again, like that Japanese pottery, the kintsugi, where they take the pieces of broken pottery and they put it together with golden glue, so the pottery is more beautiful and more valuable for having been broken in the first place, with golden glue holding the pieces of pottery together. I was talking to the men on the weekend about preaching about Christ and how Paul did that. And part of it is bringing the mind of your hearers into direct contact with the mind of the Spirit in a given passage. We went to Ephesians 4, right? Paul says, let each of you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to, to, the, practice of, to, to the practice of sensuality with impurity and greediness, right? And, and Paul's saying the problem with the Gentile mind, it's empty, it's futile. Their, their reasoning is all wrong. They... they, they they never begin their thinking by beginning their thinking with God. It's like the leftists, as Reagan said, it's not that they're wrong, they just know so many things that just ain't so, right? And, and that's what we're all like by nature. We don't factor God into the equation, and so everything we think we know just ain't so. And that empty head leads to a hard heart that leads to a, a dead, filthy life. Now, the answer, what's the answer to that? Paul says, but you Christians did not learn Christ this way, if indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus. We need the answer to the empty mind of the pagan is a mind full of Christ. And then Paul goes on, that in, a, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Why do we sin? Because we listen to the lies our lusts tell us. 
And Paul says the answer is, you must be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God is created in righteousness and holiness, which is from the truth. And these two lifestyles, the old man who's being deceived by the lies his lusts tell him, and the new man who's being transformed by a new way of thinking, truth bringing forth righteousness and holiness, obedience to a standard, righteousness, and devotion to a person, holiness. So, I was telling them, it's not enough to tell people, stop using pornography, stop warning, stop worrying, stop getting angry. You've got to understand why. What lies are you believing in order to watch pornography, to get angry with your wife or your children, to worry and fret, to think that temptations have overcome you that you are not able to bear? What lies do you have to believe to go there? You need to expose those things and then challenge those things with the Word of Christ. That's how it happens. As Christ comes down and says, okay, you're, you're all stressed out and anxious. Play back the mental tape of your mind. What thoughts are feeding into those, those, those angry feelings, those anxious feelings? Oh, I, I, if I get Alzheimer's disease, what's going to become of my family? If, if this happens, if that happens, if this happens, and all these thoughts, these thoughts are feeding into the anxious feelings. Or why did you lose your temper at the child? Well, because he's not working, and if he doesn't work, he's going to fail his exams and not go to college and not get a good job and be poor and not get a good wife and all these things, right? Those are the thoughts, and that's feeding into your anger. And he makes me look stupid as a father, okay? Right, all those thoughts. Now, what what does Christ say about those thoughts? How does Christ address those thoughts with His truth? Because you'll never learn to live a way you've never lived before if you don't come to think a way you've never thought before. And Christ comes down with His grace, His mercy, His power, His cross. He assures us that He's atoned for all of our sins, that what He has done is enough to settle the wrath of God forever. It's off the table. And now He comes by His Holy Spirit to work in you both to will and to do by His good pleasure. And He does that in the mind, first and foremost, and in the heart. And Paul says, that's what I want for you, that your love may abound more and more with, with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and that great day of eternity, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God, or the glory and praise of God. Lastly, glorify God as much as you can. That at the day of Christ, what God has done in your life will be productive to the glory and praise of God. When I was speaking to the young fellows at the the conference, I was saying, when I'm preaching, and when you're praying too, what I'm looking for is a Psalm 21 experience. Sorry, Psalm 29 experience. Remember Psalm Ascribe to the Lord, O Son of the Mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The Lord, the glory of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The 
the Lord's over many waters. And David's maybe up in the, up in the mountains of Judea watching a thunderstorm roll in from the sea. The glory of the Lord upon the waters, the God of glory thunders. And he goes up to Lebanon, goes down to Kadesh. From the north to the south, watch this storm come down. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord makes, shakes Kadesh. He shakes the wilderness of Kadesh, the thunder of God. The, he's seeing the lightning and the flashing and the thunder. And it's a storm, but it reminds him of God coming down into the sanctuary on the Lord's day for worship. The voice of the Lord shatters the, the, the cedars and, and makes the deer to calf. A beautiful picture of terrifying power, the cedars being shattered, and awesome tenderness. As in the middle of all this, this little baby calf is being born safely. Like that F5 tornado we went through Oklahoma a few years ago, and it, was, it turned a neighborhood into matchsticks sucked a house up and turned it into sawdust. And in the middle of that house was a grandfather holding his 18-month-old daughter. He was killed, but the 18-month daughter was plucked out of his arms by an F-5 tornado, carried 300 yards and deposited gently on a mound of mud, covered in, in mud like chocolate. And I saw the video of the, of the highway patrol officer who flashed his light across and saw this, the eyes of the little baby on the mud. Not a scratch, right? God, it's like God coming down, terrifying power, thunder, and then little baby being born and, and being protected and preserved, tenderness. And David says, and in his temple, everything says what? Glory. People in the temple, as they meet God, the only thing they can say is glory. And you know there's coming a day when God is finished with you. Paul says, I am convinced that the work he began, he will complete for the day of Christ. When God has finished his work in you, the strongest of you, the weakness of you, some of you now might look pretty sketchy. And you might think, I'm not very impressive. One day when God is finished with you, and you're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the angels and the universe of the spirits of just men made perfect will look at you and your life story, and they will say, glory to God. They'll just say, glory. Look at what you took this person from and what you brought them to they look just like Jesus. And Paul says, that's what you pray for, that you might love better than you can, that you might think as clearly as you can, you might choose as wisely as you can, that you might live as well as you can, and you might glorify God as much as you can, which you will do in the end. And when you pray those things, you're praying the thing that God will certainly do. If you pray like that, Satan will say of you what Mary, Queen of Scots, said of John Knox. I fear the prayers of that man more than all the armies of Europe. Because when that man prays, heaven listens and heaven answers.
But you know that? Satan fears your prayers more than he fears all the nuclear bombs in Russia's disposal, which is why he will fight tooth and nail when you're praying. When I'm praying, I'm praying. And the devil's going, you're wasting your time. What are you doing praying? People, you need to go and see people. You need to go and prepare sermons. What are you doing praying? Are you crazy? Like this morning when I'm writing this sermon, and I'm thinking, I haven't got time to pray with the elders. And I'm thinking, hold on a second, Neil. You're about to preach on praying, and you haven't got time to pray with the elders. I haven't. I haven't even started the sermon yet. Think about that, Neil. Okay. So that was the devil, right? And mercifully, the Holy Spirit won out. But when you pray, God listens. Satan fears your prayers more than all the armies in Europe, and he'll fight tooth and nail to keep you off your knees. Don't listen to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word this morning. We pray, O Lord, have mercy and come by your power. And fill this place up, O Lord, with your glory, that we might be full of a spirit of prayer and supplication, and that you would hear, for the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and your ears are attentive to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of, the earth, the memory of them from the earth. But when the righteous cry, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Deliver your people, O God, this morning. You know they're faced by many burdens and trials and fears and anxieties and temptations all around them. Give us grace to pray like Paul, that you would hear and answer, and that Christ will save the travail of his soul and be satisfied. In his name we pray. Amen.